Good evening and welcome to the Noahide Nations class on Proverbs. My name is Doug Taylor. It is Sunday, December 12th, 2010, and we're starting tonight with Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 21. And the verse reads, The wise of heart will be called an understanding person, and one whose speech is sweet will gain learning. The wise of heart will be called an understanding person, and one whose speech is sweet will gain learning. And as we generally do with these verses, let's start by asking ourselves, what are the questions? What questions come to mind when you think about that verse that we would want to get on the table and be able to answer in order to understand what King Solomon is trying to teach us here? And there are several. First of all, what does it mean to be wise of heart? And why did King Solomon say wise of heart? Why didn't he just say wise? And then the verse reads, the wise of heart will be called an understanding person. What is an understanding person? And why will a person who is wise of heart be called an understanding person? And then the second half says, one whose speech is sweet will gain learning. So what does it mean to have speech that is sweet? And who is the one whose speech is sweet? And who gains the learning? And how does that work? And finally, how does the first half relate to the second half? There doesn't seem to be a contrast here. <clears throat> so where to begin? Rashi opens up the approach for us by indicating that the first half is talking about a student while the second half is talking about a teacher. And we'll see how this fits beautifully into the verse as we go along. Rashi says that a person who learns wisdom from his teacher will be called understanding. So the wise in heart is a student who takes to heart what his teacher is saying. And I'll suggest that the words wise in heart are used to emphasize one who really thinks through the ideas until they become a part of him, not just someone who accepts the ideas and operates from them without internalizing them. When you go over and over true ideas, they start to become real to your mind. It's not like you're just parroting what the teacher says. It's you've gone through all the steps and you see exactly how it works and then the idea is real to you, and then you own it. My professional training is as an actuary. An actuary uses mathematical skills, particularly in the areas of probability and statistics, to solve complex business and social problems, like retirement planning and the development of insurance programs. Years ago, when I was working in the area of helping clients appropriately fund their retirement plans, I worked with an outside attorney on some of the cases that I was involved in. And at that time, Hewlett Packard came out with a very small pocket calculator that had annuity functions at the top where you could input a period, uh, that is a number of, of uh, periods, say five years or 10 years or 20 years, a payment amount, an interest rate, a present value, and a future value. And you could insert any four of those and the calculator would solve for the fifth. So 
this made annuity calculations, you know, simple for a lot of lay people who didn't know uh, the mathematics behind uh, annuities and how to calculate uh, payments on them and that kind of thing. So the lawyer commented to me one day over the phone something like, see, now I can be an actuary. Well, the key difference between him and me was that I could sit down with a paper and pencil and I could derive from scratch the formula that was the foundation of those annuity functions in the calculator. What he was able to do was push buttons and get answers. And I'll suggest that there's an analogy there to learning almost anything. It's not about just being able to know how to press the button and get the answer. It's about knowing every step along the way so that you can go from beginning to end and completely own that subject area. So the, the, the idea is to understand the ideas so thoroughly that they begin to affect you, not just sort of like you know the answers uh, to the math problem. So the wise of heart will take that learning to heart. That is, they'll make it a part of themselves. And that person will ultimately be called an understanding person because he will have gained the insight that comes from knowing the wisdom and knowing why it's true. Not just he memorized the facts in the situation, but the idea is real to him because he went through every step of the process and saw how it was correct from beginning to end, understood every step along the way. He's not just repeating what someone else said to him. When a person goes through that process, the knowledge uh, becomes their own. Okay, and uh, Jim, you've said on a related note, you're reading The Fall and Decline of the Roman Empire, and Gibbon writes that Rome's decline began with learning. According to him, they studied Greek scientific texts, but did not further learning, uh, apparently do further learning themselves by practicing science. Very interesting point. Uh, as soon as you get to the point where all you're doing is just um, learning it by rote, but you're not actually doing it, it's like trying to be an ice skater by reading a textbook about it. It's not going to happen. You have to get in and do the science, do the math, go through the steps in the idea, and prove to yourself that it's true. And when you toil in Torah that way, the Torah then becomes yours. It's, it's Torah that you've earned, so to speak, because you've worked it out, you've wrestled with it, you've asked the questions, and you've answered them so that your mind is convinced. Um, so uh, that's what my understanding of the first half is talking about. Now, in the second half, we're talking about the teacher. So why does it say that one whose speech is sweet will gain learning? Sometimes we think we have an idea. We think we've got it, but it's not really clear to us, but we don't realize that. It just sounds good to us, and we nod our heads and we say, yeah, that makes sense to me. But when the teacher says the idea out loud, it forces a certain degree of clarity. 
whenever you're thinking about something, it's much easier to be kind of smushy and mushy if all that it is is existing in your thoughts, except for a very, very well-trained person, I'll submit. For most of us, we think we have an idea, yeah, and it makes complete sense, and we're ready to move on. But if we're forced to articulate it, that becomes much more difficult. So when the teacher uh, puts the idea into words, you see the errors and the holes in your thinking. I think I may have related this anecdote in an earlier class that uh, I learned to play the piano when I was a very young child. And uh, there were certain parts of certain pieces that I got where I just kind of mushed through them really quickly and I thought it sounded okay. But if the teacher came back and said, play that part slowly for me, I couldn't do it. Because I wasn't really playing it, I just sort of had fooled myself into thinking that I was playing it. But when you go through and you can do it note by note, and in the right order, with the right tone, then you can speed it up and then you are playing the piece correctly. Now, the commentators give a variety of reasons why it makes sense to articulate ideas out loud in that sweet sound of learning. Okay, and I added uh, uh, one to this list. First of all, when you say the words out loud in a sweet way, it makes them readily available to the student. An idea that is clearly expressed by a teacher helps the student to gain understanding. Okay, um, Sajigan talks about uh, pleasant delivery. The Rabbeinu Yona uh, comments that saying the ideas out loud enhances understanding. Uh, the Meiri comments that when you say an idea out loud, it's more likely to be remembered. Uh, and it was pointed out uh, in the Art Scroll Proverbs edition that articulating one's learning with his lips is listed as one of the first of the first several of the 48 essential attributes needed to acquire the Torah. Okay, and those are uh, discussed in Ethics of the Fathers, or Perke Avos, uh, Chapter 6 and Mishnah 6. And finally, the Miri adds that verbalizing wisdom by teaching it and responding to questions improves a person's memory and sharpens their thinking. Okay, and in addition, spelling, talking out loud gives interestingly the teacher the opportunity to learn from the student. Um, there's a Talmudic dictum uh, that uh, a teacher indicated that he learned most from his students. So the wise student will take his teacher's ideas to heart and review them and make them his own. And the wise teacher will speak sweetly so that his students, his or her students progress and they gain learning along the way. Okay, any questions on that? Yeah, Sajigan uh, said that a pleasant delivery, and I'm quoting out of the art scroll here, benefits the educator for another reason. 
if people appreciate his talk, they will come back and thereby allow him the privilege of continuing to teach. Um, and again, Meiri says uh, that when you prepare, uh, you have to prepare uh, very thoroughly, so one must anticipate all the questions the students will present, and after the lecture, one's listeners inevitably ask questions that force one to sharpen one's presentation. So it's it's uh, it, it's good for for everyone in that sense, um, and the uh, oh the point that I wanted to expand on just a little bit, um, uh, Rashi says uh, that one who transmits his knowledge to others with clear reasoning and a pleasant delivery will enhance his own understanding, but then uh, and he says this is or the art scroll says this is consistent with the Talmudic dictum stated by Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Rabbi Judah the Prince, quote, I have learned much Torah from my teachers and more from my peers, but most of all from my students. So, uh, the, the teaching process is one that is a gift for both the student and the teacher, uh, because in order to be able to teach something, you really have to delve in and, and know it well in order to be able to share the ideas clearly with someone else. And at the same time, then your students come along and they ask questions and that sharpens uh, your ability and, and may they may ask a question that you hadn't considered. It opens up a whole new opportunity uh, for everyone to learn. So there's a real uh, team effort in that that uh, can be very, very beneficial. I, I think sometimes in in Western society, we have this idea that teaching means teacher stands up in front of the class, students all sit there, don't say much, and take down everything that the teacher says. Uh, that's an approach, but if you really want everybody to be involved in learning, it becomes a dialogue and an interaction between the student and the teacher where they're wrestling with the ideas and maybe the student is challenging the teacher's ideas, not from the standpoint of, you know, I'm going to make life difficult for the teacher, but in a spirit of, of intellectual inquiry and questioning and trying to understand the idea so that it's very, very clear uh, to the student. Uh, okay. One of the difficulties we have in, in, uh, in the United States is that we have teachers also who have large class sizes. And the, one of the ways that um, teaching, particularly Torah, was so effective and why the Talmud wasn't written down or one of the benefits of it not being written down for a very long time was it was transmitted orally from teacher to student. And the teacher would get to know the student, every individual one, and they knew you know, what a person was ready for, what they could handle, how best to get an idea across to that particular student. When you have to address 30 people all at once, you can't have that one-on-one -on -one individual relationship as strongly as you can when you can work with uh, an individual student. Uh, that's why um, for, you know, people that want to go down that road, homeschooling uh, makes a huge amount of sense because the uh, the teacher, the parents, get to know uh, their children very well, and one child will learn differently than another, and they, they can structure learning in a way that will 
work best with the student's learning style or how fast they can move or uh, whatever it might be. So uh, that was the, uh, the approaches I understand it that they took uh, in the days when they taught Talmud orally from teacher to student to teacher to student to teacher to student. Uh, also, one of the reasons, and I may have mentioned this before, why, as I understand it, the sages did not like to write books. Because when you write a book, you don't have that connection with the reader. Uh, and so you put a lot of information out there. Yes, you can reach a lot more people, but there's also a greater possibility of misunderstanding the ideas, which may be a worse situation than not transmitting the ideas at all. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yes, Jim, Socrates said that books would be a problem for that very reason. And we certainly see that today. Uh, we, we see how people pull uh, Talmud out of context and uh, say, well, the Talmud says this, the Talmud says that. And they've never studied it. They've never had a bona fide teacher. Uh, they don't really know uh, what they're saying. And uh, so that, that can end up in uh, great difficulty. Okay, then in that case, we will move on to Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 22. And this verse reads, A source of life is intelligence to its possessor, but the discipline of foolish ones is foolishness. A source of life is intelligence to its possessor, but the discipline of foolish ones is foolishness. So, what are the questions here? What questions do we need to ask to try to uncover what King Solomon is talking about in this verse? Okay. Um, Jim, good. What's intelligence? Excellent. And how's that different from wisdom? As we've talked about both of those, why is it a fountain of life or a source of life? Uh, and what's the discipline? Yes, Linda, what's the discipline of a fool? Uh, seems like a, a funny juxtaposition. Uh, and yes, Jim, how can the folly... Uh, or the, the discipline of foolish ones be uh, foolishness. And Janine, thank you. Why is the word discipline used for fools? That seems like kind of an, uh, uh, words that you wouldn't normally put together. Uh, we wouldn't expect there to be discipline around fools. So um, let's start with intelligence. I'll suggest that intelligence is the ability to analyze a situation and understand the reality of it. The ability to analyze a situation and understand the reality of it. That requires certain observational skills and certain analytical skills. You have to be able to see what's going on, grasp the various implications, see personalities, understand what's going on with them, and so forth. So intelligence is your ability to see the game board of life clearly. Now given that, 
Why is intelligence a source of life to one who possesses it? I'll suggest because it gives him the opportunity to act in accordance with reality, to make decisions that take into account the whole chessboard, if you will. He doesn't just see the pawn ahead of him and a knight to his right. He sees the whole board. He sees his actions, different possibilities of actions, what those consequences of, of the consequences of each of those actions could be, who's going to be influenced by the decision, what the impact is on them, even of people off to the side who don't seem like they're going to be involved. He is able to equip himself to make decisions that can benefit him and bring him success in a, uh, I guess, a societal, a wholly societal way. Not just in a selfish way, but seeing, again, the whole game board. Now, I want to suggest a subtlety here. The verse reads that intelligence is a source of life. It does not say that it is life. Why the distinction? I think because intelligence without appropriate action to back it up won't lead to success or life. A person can have all kinds of knowledge about a situation and the ability to analyze situations with genius, but if he doesn't act on that knowledge, it won't help him. So I think this is why King Solomon said that intelligence is a source of life. You have to take that source and then you have to act on it in order to get the benefits that you want. Without the action, the intelligence is useless. I mean, think of it like during a war. One side wants intelligence, uh, information about the reality of the other side. So they have spies, they have observers, they have analysts looking at the data, all kinds of ways of getting information and pulling it in and analyzing it. And that information can be a source of life to the nation. It can help the nation protect itself against its enemies. But only if the leaders take the right action with regard to that information. If the leaders sit on the information and do nothing about it, then the information, even though it is a source of life to the nation, is useless. The information has to be combined with intelligent action that makes use of the information in order to get the desired results. So I'll submit to you that's the first half. A source of life is intelligence to its possessor. Now, the second half reads that the discipline of foolish ones is foolishness. So what is the discipline of foolish ones? That seems like, like uh, two things that just don't go together. And I want to suggest like this. Even if a person is foolish, he thinks he's operating intelligently. I will submit to you that it is a rare case where a foolish person openly understands and admits that yeah, I'm a fool. 
people have a clouded view of themselves. And they see themselves as all kinds of things that they're not. And foolish people can view themselves as intelligent. So in that capacity, they might take actions that they think are helping them. For example, a foolish person who thinks they're out of shape may decide, after they've been a couch potato for, say, three years, that what they need to do is get in shape tomorrow by going on a 50-mile hike with a 65-pound pack. Now, what that person is likely to find is that he gets a very short way into the hike and then he collapses. Why? He did not slowly get himself in shape, but instead he overtaxed himself way beyond his capabilities. But his intention was good, right? He was disciplining himself. True, but his idea of discipline was not based on knowledge and wisdom. It was based on foolishness. His discipline, even though it might have been with a good intent, resulted in foolishness. Anybody who looked at a person, anybody with a reasonable amount of intelligence and familiarity with exercise and, and discipline and whatever, and looked at a person who did that, would think they were foolish. Like, what is that guy doing? He's going to kill himself. But hey, he's just pushing through because he's going to get in shape overnight. So even though the fool tries to apply discipline, the result will still be foolishness unless he's able to apply true knowledge and wisdom in the first place. But as long as he's operating as a fool, he's going to be lacking that true knowledge and wisdom. And thus his idea of discipline will be for naught. So the verse seems to be teaching us the importance of intelligence, both for those who have it and for those who don't, and the consequences of having intelligence and not having intelligence. Okay, questions on that? Okay, thank you, Jim. And I'll assume if nobody's asking a question that we're good to go. Uh, further. Okay, let's move on then to Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 23. So the verse reads, the heart of a wise man places intelligence into his mouth and increases learning on his lips. Proverbs 16, 23, the heart of a wise man places intelligence into his mouth and increases learning on his lips. So, what do you think the questions are? The heart of a wise man places intelligence into his mouth and increases learning on his lips. Okay, Jim, what's the difference between mouth and lips? This is really odd. I mean, we've got one on one side, one on the other. They're very close to each other. Um, and Janine, you're suggesting out of the out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Maybe we'll take a look at that and see if we can make some 
some headway out of that. And Jim, good question too. Why is intelligence in the first half and learning in the second half? Are these opposites? Are they two? Is, is King Solomon just telling us the same thing twice? What's he getting at? So, again, I'm going to take heart as meaning the mind. And as we've discussed previously, at the time this book was written, heart was often used to refer to the mind, not to the emotions like we think of it today. So, the Rabbeinu Yonah tells us on this verse that the wise man puts intelligence in his mouth. That is, he thinks before he speaks. Thus, when he speaks, what he says is clear and beneficial. The wise man uses his words sparingly when it comes to his dealings with other people. He does not yak on and on and on, but will, I think, be one of those people like the old E.F. Hutton commercial slogan, you know, that went, when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. Um, a wise person is one that when they say something, you want to listen to it. I've had the good fortune of knowing some of those people in my life. They did not go on endlessly about mundane matters, but rather their words were so sparing that when they did speak, you definitely wanted to stop and listen because you knew that what they were saying was going to be worthwhile to hear. So the heart of the wise man places intelligence into his mouth. He uses his intelligence to think before he speaks and to make sure that whatever he says is wise and worthwhile. At the same time, the wise man recognizes that his lips have a primary purpose. Yes, he has to engage in a certain amount of commerce and earn a living and so forth, just like we all do. But apart from those utilitarian aspects of, in, of existence, I will submit that there are two other possible uses of the lips. One is for unnecessary talk, like gossip, and the other is for learning. The wise man recognizes that his focus is on learning. So he uses his lips to increase learning. This could be Torah learning, could be learning about some other aspect of life. But when he has the opportunity to be in a situation or be around someone from whom he can learn something, he uses his lips to ask questions, to inquire, to repeat ideas back for clarity, and so forth. His lips are a tool for his primary focus in life, and that primary focus is learning. So the verse is teaching us how the wise man uses the gift of speech. When he's responding... He uses it to respond with intelligence, so that when he has to speak uh, in response to someone, he puts intelligence into his mouth and makes sure that he says something that is wise and worthwhile. And then he also turns around and uses 
those lips, that gift of speech, to increase his intelligence. Any questions on that verse? Okay, let's move on then to Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 24. This is one that is often quoted in, uh, in different contexts. Pleasant words are like a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Pleasant words are like a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. What comes to mind in terms of questions about that verse? Okay, Jim, good. How do pleasant words heal bones? Very good point. How do pleasant words heal bones? And I might ask, what are pleasant words? And how are they, or why are they, like a honeycomb? I mean, this is an obvious metaphor of some kind. So what is Solomon getting at with that particular metaphor? And what does sweet to the soul mean, and how are pleasant words sweet to the soul? And Janine, you've asked, are words just words, or do they have a deeper meaning for our inner recesses? Generally speaking, when we, when we look at a proverb, we start with the plain meaning of the words. If we can't make any sense out of that, then uh, we, may, we may look deeper. Uh, and there may there can be uh, there can be multiple meanings uh, here. Uh, so and sometimes King Solomon will use uh, metaphors uh, or one thing to refer to many things. Great question. Why does he say bones? Healing to the bones. Why does he say healing to the gallbladder? Why did he say healing to the you know to uh, the nerves or or something else? Good question. Uh, it is my understanding in this verse that when he says healing to the bones, he's talking about physical healing in general. In other words, somehow pleasant words have a healing effect on the body. Uh, he's not specifically saying uh, the bones and not the liver or the bones and not the skin or something along that line, but he's referring, healing to the bones is referring to uh, a healing of the body. So let's see if we can figure out why that would be true. Uh, Lori and Terry, healing down deep inside. Yes, good point. And we will see, I think, uh, that that's a very important aspect of this. So let me start with the whole issue about honeycombs. What is a honeycomb? A honeycomb is what the honey comes on. You go uh, get a honeybee hive. Uh, the bees have created uh, a whole little wax uh, structure, and there's a lot of honey in it. Uh, so a piece of honeycomb, which you can go buy at the store, um, is essentially beeswax with honey all over it. And why is it pleasant? Because uh, it says pleasant words are like a honeycomb, so it's obviously suggesting that honeycombs are pleasant. Well, you've all tasted honey. It's quite sweet. It tastes good. 
In fact, it's a taste that is almost universally loved by people. Uh, it is a very natural, very concentrated sweetness that uh, people enjoy. Now, an interesting question that we could ask here is, well, why didn't King Solomon just say, pleasant words are like honey, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones? We'll get to the second half and what that's about, but why did he use honeycomb? With honey, you just eat it, and it tastes good. But a honeycomb, you can chew on. You can chew on it for a long time, okay, like gum. And, of course, if it's got all this sweetness in it, you just keep chewing it and chewing it, and that sweetness and that nice flavor just keeps going on and on and on. So, pleasant words are words that, I'll, I'll suggest the definition, are words that you say to someone or that someone says to you, that have an effect similar to a honeycomb. First, they taste good. They're words that make you feel better, uh, words that have a positive impact on your life. Your life follows your thoughts, and if the thoughts you are having are pleasant, you're going to have a pleasant experience. If the thoughts you're having are unpleasant, you're probably going to have an unpleasant experience. Um, if you're stuck in traffic and you say to yourself, wow, isn't this really fortunate? Because I got this new CD I've been wanting to listen to and now I can listen to it while I'm sitting here stuck in traffic. You're probably going to feel great. If you're sitting there stuck in traffic saying to yourself, ah, this traffic, I hate this traffic, I can't stand this traffic, it just drives me crazy, this traffic, you're probably going to have a pretty unpleasant experience. So if someone says something to you that evokes a pleasurable response in you, for example, maybe they compliment you on your cooking, or on the great job you did on the company project, or that you look nice, those words will generally evoke a positive response in you. They make you feel good. And furthermore, they can last. A kind word said to someone who is starving for appreciation may be remembered by him or her for a long, long time. They may chew on it like a honeycomb, and the pleasure may last and last and last. Even though they're having a bad day, they keep coming back to that really nice thing you said to them early this morning. If you're in retail and you have to deal with customers all day and a bunch of them are really in bad moods and are grousing at you and taking out all their anger on you, but one customer comes along and thanks you and is appreciative and empathizes with the fact that, boy, you must really have a challenging job during this holiday season with all this stuff you have to deal with. I just so appreciate the time you've taken with me. Just those kind words could be something that person not only takes in immediately and has a very positive impact, but they can remember those words hours and even days later when people are, you know, ragging all over them. And yet they'll say, yeah, but remember that person that came up and said that really nice thing to me. 
So even if the person isn't consciously chewing on it, the pleasure that they derive from that can affect their whole being and raise their spirits and have an impact on their whole day or even beyond that. I once had a, uh, in a company I worked for, uh, once had a person who I perceived to be senior to me. Um, he made a very kind comment one day that he recognized that I had a pretty thankless job and that he really appreciated all that I was doing for the company. That one remark lifted my spirits for days, even weeks and months. I would go back and remember what that guy said. Sometimes we have no idea how much a kind word can mean to someone because we have little idea of the challenges and the struggles that uh, each of these people we meet on a daily basis is actually going through. They may have their game face on. You know, how are you? Oh, I'm fine. When in fact, actually I'm torn up inside and I'm struggling with a whole bunch of life problems and, you know, my life's in the pits. But they're not going to tell you that. But yet you say something pleasant to, pleasant to them and it can have a huge positive impact. So when the verse says sweet to the soul, I think it means um, uh, the deep core of the person. Uh, Lori and Terry, uh, healing down deep inside, like you said. Uh, it, it can affect both their conscious thinking and their unconscious thinking, and thus be very, very positive for them. Now, as for the healing to the bones part, we've discussed in the past that there is an incredible connection between the mind and the body. When people think negatively, their physiology is negatively affected. And by contrast, when people think positively, their physiology, their physical self, is positively affected. Okay? The, the um, athletic performer who mentally convinces himself he can do that thing, he can make that jump, he can uh, overcome that obstacle, is in a much better position to do that than the one who sits there telling themselves, there's no way I can make this, I can't possibly make this, I know I'm going to fail, I know I'm going to hit that high bar, I know it's not going to work. Um, and the, the, those, negative, um, those negative feelings or negative thoughts actually affect our physiology. For example, a person who gets angry can speed up their heart rate, they can cause an injection of adrenaline into their system, they can raise their blood pressure, a whole bunch of different things. And all that takes place as a result only of the person's thoughts. Okay, When, when a person gets angry, it is not because of something outside doing it to them. We like to say that, we like to blame it on other people, but in fact, I'm the one who is doing it to myself. And the thoughts that I am having about that situation are the ones that are making a difference on my body right at that point in a real physical way. So if our thoughts can do all that, think of what pleasant thoughts can do in the opposite direction. They can be healing to the body and they can potentially extend a person's life. So when it says pleasant words are like a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones, 
I'll suggest that it means they're wonderfully pleasant to hear, they can be chewed on for a while and remembered and enjoyed for a long time, they are sweet to the person at their very core, and they're physiologically healing because of the pleasantness of them, and that is a positive thing physiologically to the body. So the verse is teaching us about the enormous power of pleasant words in helping both ourselves and other people. Okay, any questions on that verse? Okay, then in that case, I'm going to stop just a little bit early. We just have about five minutes more, and the next uh, verse is going to lead into the verse after that, and I'm not going to be able to do it justice in the time that we have left. So we'll hold that for next week. Uh, in the meantime, I wish you all a very great week. Thanks for joining. And uh, if you have any questions, uh, you can email me during the week. I will put the uh, uh, my email address down here. And uh, otherwise, we'll uh, hope to have you join us next week. Thanks very much.